Hey, just a quick note before we get started. Uh, this podcast was recorded under level three conditions under Skype and sounds even worse than some of the previous ones. We had some dropouts. It's pretty rough going. The good news is this will be the last of our Skype conversations, uh, so stick with us. We'll be back soon in the same room and we'll be uh, bringing higher audio quality, if not content quality. And with that out of the way, welcome to the final quarantine episode, we hope, of Ludicrously Specific. Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, the internet-based audio podcast about three films with an unlikely connection and our meticulous and annoying discussion of what goes into those. My name is Doug, and my favorite film noir is The Devil Thumbs a Ride. My name is Darren, and my favorite film noir is Blast of Silence. Good one. And my name is Steve, and my favorite film noir is The Big Sleep. And why is it that we're talking about film noir today? Uh, because we're not watching film noir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> our, our theme, though, is ludicrously specifically related. So our theme today is three films directed by or starring a New Zealander set in the film noir era. So these are films from the 90s predominantly that we're looking at, 90s and early 2000s, that are set in the, the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, so film noir, are we fans? I'm, I'm sure we are. Yeah, I love film noir, although I also have this sort of um, issue where they, uh, the titles all run together for me after a while, and the big combo and the big clock and the big heat turn into a big blur. But um, <laughs> I always find myself, I'd rather watch a mediocre film noir than a mediocre almost any other genre. It's, it's definitely one of those, those genres where it, once you get into it, you do end up searching out completely obscure titles just to, to see... You know, you've, you've seen all the big ones. You've you've seen all the the Bogarts, and you start finding these these really obscure ones that pop up, and are just fantastic. Something like Detour, for instance. Detour is terrific. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, which is micro budgeted film noir. And my father-in-law actually showed it to me. He said, "Oh, you probably want to see this. It's a black and white one. You'll you'll probably enjoy it." And he was right. It was a fantastic <laughs> little film, but shot for no money whatsoever. Yeah, the relentless cynicism certainly is uh, an incredible thing that wasn't available in a lot of the studio system. And I think part of it was because as long as they could turn it in in a certain number of days and um, generate the product, they could get away with whatever they could within the censorship code, pretty much. Yeah, and they definitely push that censorship code quite a bit. I mean, The Big Sleep has got some dialogue in there, which is just dancing around. You know, it's pretty obvious to today, but the censors just went, yeah, that's fine. They're talking about horse racing, not about... <laughs> and in terms of those um the the listener out there who is is not familiar with what film noir is a, a quick uh, google search for film noir it's a style or genre of cinema cinematographic film marked by a mood of pessimism fatalism and menace the term was originally applied by a group of French critics to American thrillers or detective films made in the period of 1944 to 54, and to the work of directors such as Orson Welles, Fritz Lang, and Billy Wilder. There you go. That's pretty much the exact era that our films are set in. But before we get into those films, why don't we talk about some other films, because we're all still on lockdown here. 
and going slightly stir-crazy after five weeks <laughs> and presumably watching an awful lot of films. Yeah, when th this comes out, who knows where we'll be, but we're currently at uh, level three, which is uh, one step down from level four in New Zealand. So for those of you not in New Zealand, it basically means that we've had these bubbles during level four that are pretty much who's ever on our roof, under our roof. Uh, and now we can expand those ever so slightly to include uh, uh, maybe another family member or something. Uh, I've just, we've reconnected with our in-laws, but that's it. Have you guys reconnected at all? I'll be reconnecting tonight. I'm going to go over and actually cook a, a, a nice roast pork over at my mother's place tonight. First time I've that she's had anyone in her house for five weeks because she uh, is, uh, lives alone. So this is quite a big occasion. I'm getting out some nice wine for it. But uh, it's, yeah, level three is definitely, it's it's level four uh, with the ability to buy a Big Mac. So that's, that's pretty much <laughs> Essentially, where it's, where yeah. So still don't go out if you don't have to and, um, you know, get your food sent to you. So, <laughs> yeah, as far as reconnecting, my parents are quite, uh, they're still in the same city, but they're still quite far away and over the 70 bracket. So I'm, I'm still keeping my distance there, but my flatmate who owns the house has now come back. It's uh, which he legally is now allowed to do. So I'm not going quite as stir crazy as I once was, <laughs> which is good. I, I, I prefer that. It's uh, yeah, the conversations. Things. Well, that's it. The conversations I were having with the chickens was pretty one-sided. And <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's good to have an extra voice in there. I'm sure you watched a couple of movies. What, what movies have you been watching there, Darren? I'll, we'll let you go first this time. Okay. Um, so I've um, been watching quite a few, but I've uh, narrowed it down to three, which I were particularly fond of. Uh, one being I, comma, Monster. It's important you get that comma in there, or you <laughs> cannot find this at all on IMDb. Uh, and it was made in 1971. It's one of the uh, the few Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing movies I haven't seen. And it's a um, a strangely very faithful take on uh, the Dr. Je Jekyll or Jekyll, however you choose to pronounce it, and Mr. Hyde uh, story, yet not using any of the names because they didn't have the rights to do so. So it's it's one of the one of the most faithful takes on the story, and yet they don't have the the, the right to to do the story. Right, so she's always caused conflicts like that. So uh, yeah, so Doctor, so do they have to call him something like Doctor Doctor Jakey or something cool? <laughs> <laughs> something uh, something along those lines, certainly. Yeah, and he's, of it. <laughs> but yes, it is uh, Christopher Lee is the uh, the Doctor Jekyll character, and it's. Um, a really, uh, Dr. Marlowe, in fact, is the, and Mr. Blake. So, so Charles Marlowe, he's quite, well, possibly, yes. So Charles Marlowe is a psychologist. He researches a new drug capable to release inhibitions and uses his patients as guinea pigs. Of course, he eventually uses himself. And he becomes the ugly and evil Edward Blake. And, and that's uh, pushing and uh, no, no, that's uh, that's still Christopher Lee. Uh, Peter oh, Cushing is is his friend who suspects that Edward Blake is um, actually blackmailing Charles. Marlowe. Ah, and, uh, and so the uh, and it's pretty much the usual story, but it's really it's it's quite a lot of fun, and it's it's really interesting to see Christopher Lee. 
letting his hair down, so to speak, and having a lot of a lot of fun as the uh, as the Mister Hyde character. Yeah, he's he, he's always such a solid character actor. It's, it's always you know he brings the gravitas. But when he does get to have a, a bit of fun there, I mean, as we've we've seen you know at, at my place when there's a terrible movie like The Return of Captain Invincible, which has then got oh. a glorious oh. section of Christopher Lee singing a Rocky Horror esque number about alcohol, and it just redeems a terrible, terrible movie for four and a half minutes. It's, it's, but that's that's as far as the redemption goes. Exactly. <laughs> so don't bother seeing that movie. Look that up on, <laughs> on the internet. Just look up Christopher Lee singing Name Your Poison, and you'll understand that Christopher Lee having a good time is a good time for everybody. Absolutely. Did so he have I, some records? Did, is it my imagination, or did he no, put out he, a, like a heavy metal record or something? He's many, several heavy metal records, yeah. yes. Yeah, and, and not Spotify, just heavy metal either. So what, he's, what he's, other genres? Smooth jams? <laughs> <laughs> well, just uh, there's some that are just full on opera, as the, he is a trained opera singer. So uh, it, this um, Christopher Lee, who I've I've loved watching his movies since I was a kid, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and uh, he just has many, many strings to his bow. I highly recommend Eye Monster. It's just uh, a lot of fun, and it's What's one of your those. Favorite Lee Cushing movie. Oh, that's hard. There's so many good ones. Um, the Gorgon is great, which I uh, once had the opportunity to see on um, on a sixteen. Mill, I think. Um, and uh, so the Gorgon's great. Creeping Flesh is excellent. The If you're going for a classic, then there's the um, the horror of Dracula, or in England it was just called Dracula, because they didn't need that horror part. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of implied. Horror of <laughs> copyright. <laughs> but, um, and they're just so great together, and they were very lifelong friends. From the time that they and oh, of course, there's Frankenstein, which was their first pairing, which was called the Curse of Frankenstein, I believe, where it's uh, Peter Cushing played Baron von Frankenstein, and the uh, and Christopher Lee was the creature. It's, so I'd love to know if there's like a good book or a good like oral history of them as friends, because I'd like to think that they appeared in these things and had a nice relationship off camera as well. well it's it's pretty documented, yes. Yeah, there's a lot, lots of, of, lot of stills that you can uh, look up online showing them just having a cup of tea and things like that. And they, apparently they were lifelong friends all the way up until Peter Cushing died. So um, I think uh, when Christopher Lee died, I think my first tweet was, well, I'm hoping for, uh, uh, Peter Cushing is right now saying, oh, what took you so long, old chap? Sit down, come in. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what else have you been having to look at, Darren? Okay, well, there's um, there's one that um, that I believe Skeets has watched recently as well. But it's uh, I've I've just been randomizing my movies because I have quite a lot of them, and I've just sort of closed my eyes and choose, and uh, fell upon a film called The Take, 1974. Ah, uh, there we go, the one I mentioned. Yes, last which time we talked right? about yep. last time. Yeah, so you did get around to seeing that. Nice. It's it's great. It's uh, Billy D. Williams is just t- t- completely Mr. Smooth. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. And nothing, it's, nothing it's very unflappable. He is the definition of unflappable in that movie. 
And it's a it's a crime that he never had the career, which I think he deserved. He, he deserved a lot, sort of leading man career, certainly in the seventies through to the eighties. He just never quite never quite tipped that. But uh, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a, a one that um, really was, uh, is an excellent film that I believe we have done at Skeets was Bingo Long, Traveling All Stars, and Motor Kings. And again, it's if another. I've got another with a title like that. You think I would remember? Although it's, I will say we have watched an awful lot of movies at my place over the last 11, 12 years. It uh, might have been done at my one, but it is Billy D. Williams, James L. Jones, Richard Pryor. I would definitely remember the poster. Looking at that, that's. A... <laughs> <laughs> it's it, and it's again. It's the it. Billy D. Williams with his shit-eating grin is just a joy to watch, and he's. It's it, actually with the take. There's some great actors in there. It's a uh, great role for um, uh, well, Sorrel Brook, who uh, played Boss Hog in um, in the Dukes of Hazard, has a a nice role as the um, slimy, clever, but fairly likable um, lawyer slash accountant. For Billy D. Williams, and then there's uh, Vic Morrow is what the main bad guy, who's oh wow, who's yeah, it's um, Albert Selmy uh, plays a um, another cop on the take. There's Frankie Avalon in a <laughs> a small role as a, a slimy hood. Bit of a departure um, uh, for Frankie there. I've got to say, I forgot to mention that last time around, but yeah, it was a nice callback to to our beach party movie uh, a few weeks back. <laughs> And Eddie Albert as a um, uh, a chief of police who is is all bluster, but it actually turns out to be incredibly weak and can be pushed into whatever someone wants him to do, which is handy for a, a cop who's on the take. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> well, I don't know how much of a spoiler it is. <laughs> with the title. I was going to watch this without the title. <laughs> but again another one i highly recommend and then the third one which again i think skeets may well have watched recently as we watched it um in a group of friends over the internet was sudden fury and that is a this is a film uh, so we have a, on saturday nights a bunch of friends, we watch movies over the internet and we uh, message uh, snide comments about the movie. <laughs> uh, we started doing that with Sudden Fury because for the first 20 minutes, I think we believed that this was a really poorly acted, poorly put together film. And as you go in, as the movie progresses, you... Uh, you come to realize that a lot of it was direction and acting choices and you get swept up in the, the Canadian horror of it all. <laughs> Very Canadian. <laughs> it's, it's from the country uh, that brought you rituals and the silent partner. Absolutely. It's, it's a, and it doesn't do what you expect it to do. It's, um, I didn't expect to like it. So that's, that's a tick in the, <laughs> I don't think it's, I have to scrub it off my skin afterwards. It's, it's grimy. It's very grimy. 
It it is an, a hell of an ending too. I it's uh, again another one I would highly recommend, and certainly not one I was expecting to enjoy and didn't think I was enjoying in the first <laughs> ten fifteen minutes. But uh, and I, I probably was I did enjoy it or not. It's 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 one of those films that once again it's it feels almost in real time the, the film, and uh, we, we're not going to talk about the plot because it would give everything oh. away, but. It feels like it's in real time, and it feels like you are enduring a lot of real time and real life horror. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. As I say, I'm not sure I could give say that I liked it, but I definitely experienced it. <laughs> mm. And there's a That's lot of kind uh, of an endorsement. And, <laughs> and it's not until um, not until lockdown that I've been doing this, but there was a lot of shouting at the screen, a lot of, <laughs> which I don't tend to do, but uh, lockdown has created a need for someone to talk, so it might as well be me. Um, <laughs> it's, so there's a lot of don't do that, why are you doing this? <laughs> and it's, yeah, I am, even if it's just a troubling experience that you're looking for in a movie, then I, I highly recommend Sudden Fury, which can be found on Tubi. Well, that's, so that's... some of us have been going for more comforting watching during this time. <laughs> um, well, actually, I say that I look at the films that I've been watching and I realize one of them is anything but but um over the last couple of weeks i've been doing a lot of rewatches. um in part because uh my wife tends to prefer watching things she's seen before and i'm running out of films that she's seen before that i haven't um uh-huh. so we watched rewatch mission impossible fallout and some other things um but when i actually rewatched on my own accord uh, which was just what I needed at the end of a long job. I just finished the um, big editing gig that I've been working on on Tuesday was uh, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson from 2016 with Adam Driver and Golshifta Farahini, who um, you may have seen if you watched the Chris Hemsworth Netflix film Extraction in a very different role. She's her, uh, his onsider there, but... Um, we won't talk about extraction because it's mostly not very good, but the character in that is Tyler Rake and he kills people with a rake. So that should give you a uh, <laughs> insight into that. But um, Patterson, I saw back in the theater in 2016 and it's about Adam driver as a bus driver who lives in the city of Patterson. Who's also named Patterson uh, who writes a poem every day and just goes about his life. And there's very little plot. It's just seven days in his life. Every night he takes his, bulldog for a walk and has a beer at the local bar where things go on um and it's a film that i just fell in love with when i saw it and then immediately afterwards i was like maybe i was just in the right mood nothing really happens and um and so i've been really reluctant to revisit it i don't know if you guys have ever had this where you see a movie and you love it but you're also like worried that if you go back like it'll retroactively break this great memory you had and you'll be like, Oh, it wasn't all that. It was just that I was just in the perfect mood when I saw that. Do you guys know what I'm talking about Definitely when I say that? that oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. um, American beauty would be one of those for me. I've never rewatched it. I re- remember it's um, get, being deeply affected by it when I saw it, which was strangely a family outing to uh, <laughs> to see that film. That would be um, deeply affecting in some <laughs> way for me, I think. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mum, Dad, and my brother and I <laughs> going out to the cinema to see American Beauty. But um, but yeah, uh, that's one that I I wonder if if that uh, if yeah, well, cur- current that sort of thing would hold up uh, again. Have a whole well, other <laughs> dimension in that as well with Mister. Well, yes, but poor life choices. But whether should it. Though it's, I mean, the art I, is I the art. I think it's unavoidable given the content. But to be fair, I haven't rewatched it. But mm. um, yeah, I, I, I think that. I mean, this gets into a whole other side of things. But I, I feel like actors are often bringing a quality of themselves to the screen to varying degrees. And Adam Driver is an interesting one. I, I'm not going to go too deep into whether we watch Kevin Spacey movies, but um, Adam Driver is an interesting one because he's one of the least protean actors that I know. I mean, you look at somebody like Heath Ledger, you know, who would just transform so much from movie to movie that you'd barely recognize him. And you look at Adam Driver and the only difference from movie to movie is like, if he has a little bit more or less of stubble and just how much his hair grew out, but he's basically <laughs> looks like it's like you look like Adam driver. And yet, despite that, you could tell from like 10 seconds of watching any of his characters. If it's the guy from marriage story, or if it's the guy from star Wars, or if it's, um, you know, Patterson or whoever, just by how he moves and how he bodies and how he reacts and that, and, and how comfortable you feel around this person it's it's a fascinating performance and watching it a second time um the thing i really appreciated is how jim jarmusch just really cast this gentle spell from the very beginning of the movie because it's very hard to make a movie where you don't have a lot of narrative and not bore the shit out of people and i think he just sets it up very well where you get hypnotized quite quickly into just expecting that there won't be that instead of waiting for the story to start and that you're just observing moment by moment. He also sets up some little sub stories that kind of play through that are very trivial, like, you know, his wife ordering a guitar and then the guitar shows up. I mean, that's not exactly high stakes. Drama. Wow. <laughs> but, <laughs> was but, there a worry that it didn't turn up on the time? Or was, <laughs> was there a delay in delivery or the, ac- the, none actual, of that? the actual tension? And it is kind of an interesting tension because he's just this kind of slow, stolidly like making a poem every day. And his wife is at home painting things and getting a new passion for making cupcakes or becoming a country singer. And so she orders this guitar and we haven't heard her sing. And we don't know as an audience, like, is this just a catastrophically bad idea or whim that could turn out kind of okay? Is she going to be, you know, she, there's a scene where she cooks a, um, it's a funny one in New Zealand because she cooks a savory pie and, and that's not uh, a weird thing in New Zealand, but in America, pies are pretty much always sweet. And so he's quite perplexed by this. And it becomes quite clear as the scene goes on that she's not done a very good job and it's incredibly dry. But he's quite um, forbearing, I suppose, and you know gets his way through it with the help of multiple large glasses of water, which he downs in single gulps, which is <laughs> a lovely performance choice. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, I found that really relaxing. Um, a movie that I found um, really enjoyable from a schadenfreude perspective was The Queen of Versailles. So I've been watching a lot on Doc Play, which is Madman's documentary uh, subscription service a la Netflix, etc. And 
the Queen of Versailles is set uh, largely during the 2008 global financial crisis. And it's about this family in Florida that are making the biggest house in America that's going to be a replica of Versailles. And they're like, we didn't set out to do it. We just kind of, it just kind of worked out that way. And, you know, you build this house because you can, and this guy's become rich on um, timeshares and married this woman who used to be Miss America and uh, is approaching 40 now. They have eight kids uh, between them. And um, and so they've got all these things going, and then the GFC hits, and things do not go to plan. And it's... Uh, just an endlessly compelling watch and kind of insane that the um, talent just let the filmmakers in bed for years as they go from being on top of the world to going um, to what for uh, them is a dramatic fall from grace, even though uh, anyone else would love to live in a house that big where you still have two housekeepers, but, you know, they've gone from like 20 and, you know, nobody's feeding the lizard and their dogs are pooing on the floor <laughs> and all these. Uh, <laughs> and so their life is just. I can relate. It's, on uh, I can camera. totally relate. Um, it, it's well, my it, housekeeper. Seriously. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, the housekeeper is just too busy keeping the eight kids alive uh, and, and going to school wow. and things like that and stuff. And, um, you know, and, and the house is, I mean, it's, it's palatial, uh, but yeah, it's so, that, so that was, and, and it's interesting because watching it now, it's like, oh my God, this is actually probably what's going on in real time for the 1% as all the various enterprises that they've speculatively assumed like, oh, we're just going to return six to 12 to 15% on this forever as the economy grows infinitely have suddenly hit the wall of COVID-19 and are trying to figure out what the hell to do. And so it's an interesting exercise in empathy or shot in Freud or wherever you want to sit on that scale. Uh, the third one. So I mentioned uh, before we started, um, I'm quite an aficionado of Letterboxd. And one of the things I do on Letterboxd is I have all the DVDs that I own that I haven't watched and Blu-rays in a, list called the unwatched heap and i can sort it by uh duration or i can sort it by uh popularity or i can sort it by user rating and so depending on if it's late at night and i only have time to watch an 80 minute movie i'll look around and see what's around there um but the other afternoon i had some extra time and i'm like okay i want to watch a really good movie that i haven't watched and um uh, up at my top 10 came Werkmeister Harmonies, which is by Belatar, who is a Hungarian uh, director. And actually, he um, quite generously credits it as uh, a film by himself, Agnes Hravitsky, who's his partner slash producer slash 1AD, and Laszlo, I'm not going to be able to get his last name, who wrote the novel that it's based on. And um, Belatar is famous for black and white miserabilism and very long takes. Werkmeister Harmony is, I think, two and a half hours and has under 40 shots, maybe 33 shots, something like that. Um, and they're all very carefully um, choreographed. So the camera is constantly moving quite slowly. Uh, and it, it's actually watching it, it feels like uh, a precursor to Children of Men and all of these things. And it's set in this village 
uh, where the circus has come to town and the circus has this big trailer that has a giant whale in it and our young protagonist is quite excited about it but it's also rumored that the circus has these agitators that have come to town and the kind of the implication that you get as you go on is the agitators are seeking out the anti-communists and getting them to put up their hands so that they get taken down uh and so there's this sort of kafka-esque element to the whole thing is um this young idealist gets sucked into this whole thing. And it leads, well, I should say also that even though it's kind of in this category of slow cinema, um, it doesn't have the sort of stasis and inertia that some of the more, I'll just say it, boring films in this genre have. Uh, it, it is really, to me, it was very engrossing from the get-go, even when it's just people drunk in a bar and they're explaining theories about how the cosmos works, or it's a guy in his um, study talking about the titular Werkmeister harmonies, which use a differently tuned scale than the normal scale. And he's obsessed with this idea that actually we've made the scale wrong the whole time, and he explains that. But the film builds up to um, sort of this Frankenstein-esque mob scene, and we have, which is covered in two shots. And the first shot is like seven or eight minutes of this giant crowd of torch-bearing people walking down the street, and they get to this hospital. And the second shot is from within the hospital and covers about 12 different rooms as as the angry mob comes in and overturns beds and inflicts indignities on the people there that are being kept. And it's not really clear why it's going on. And the camera just slowly and impact, implacably moves through all of this in this amazingly choreographed carnage um, that's not that bloody, but it's very traumatic and um, builds to a really impossibly moving uh, sort of full stop at the end of that. And so it's one of those that, um, yeah, was completely, again, kind of bleak quarantine feeling kind of viewing, but really <laughs> hit, uh, um, hit the spot for me and also just felt like it was quite before its time. And I mentioned um, extraction before and and that's you know has this sort of 20 minute fake long take that goes in in and out of a car during it and this feels like you know this was 20 years before and didn't need any faking and feels so much more impactful because there's actually stakes as opposed to how is chris hemsworth going to get away this time <laughs> anyway so that's me what about you skeet you've been watching any uh black and white three hour romanian films uh, Hungary, excuse me. Uh, no. Oh dear, <laughs> you're alienating half your audience there, uh, Doug. If you're going to get the uh, the nation wrong. <laughs> well, you you do remember last time around we said that I was going to watch Raging Bull uh, before. Yeah, how'd that go? Uh, it's on the list. <laughs> uh, oh, I watched it. I did my homework. Oh, I'm the SWAT. I just never found a spot where I was in the mood for Raging Bull. So I will be getting onto that at some stage or it will become a running gag for the rest of this podcast history. Uh, I did get around to watching a few good films uh, and a few not so good films. Uh, my favorite film that I watched in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, was The Bastard Swordsman, which is picked by the title, of course. Uh, keep catching up on my Shaw Brothers again. So it's a 1983 Shaw Brothers film starring Norman Chu. And... It is, in a word, bonkers. It is 
That's my favorite word. It is. It's one of those uh, Shaw Brothers movies which has more people flying around on rooftops than, you know, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon could have even thought about. And there's uh, uh, Taoist monks firing lasers out of their hands. And there's a basically Shaolin Spider-Man is the best way to describe it. Someone described it as that on the Internet Movie Database because our our titular bastard swordsman uh, is taught silkworm style of Kung Fu, which I'd never heard of. Which means that you, by the end of the film, you can fire silk out of your hands and form cocoons. And I just want to clarify that this has already been added to my Amazon Prime watch list. You <laughs> <laughs> found it straight away. He knew where it was. That is, it is. I, the, I cannot describe the plot. It's another one. I'm plot. glad you said that it was out of his hands. That's uh... <laughs> because where silkworms normally fire <laughs> would have been unpleasant. <laughs> That'd be some category three yeah, action, but, but watchable. It's, it's, it's incredibly good. I've, I've got to say, if, if he was firing it out of his rear end, it would it would just would have made it even better, I think. But uh, it is, in a word, another word, energetic. Its fight scenes are phenomenal. The it's you kind of your classic. You, your hero does no kung fu, but he doesn't get shot off till halfway through the film. And when Norman Chu gets going, it is ridiculously good. And it's if you like a, a good classic Shaw Brothers movie that kind of cranks up the insanity and the, the flying around and the magic mystical arts. Yeah, the Bastard Swordsman was well worth it. I knew nothing about it. I just picked it because I liked the title. Excellent. Sold. Uh, so that's a nice quick rundown on that one. I also did do a, um, a documentary as well, which was 1981's The Decline of Western Civilization. What a great film. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's the 1981 documentary on, on 80s punk. And even if you're not a punk fan, and I mean, some of this, the music in there is going to turn people off that, you know, like to be able to understand lyrics. But uh, the just the, the feel of it, the, the real grungy feel of it is is quite amazing. And I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. I think it's popped up on, on Tubi. I think I might have found that one. There's definitely the first three of those are out and, uh, and about now. So that's that's uh, Penelope Spheris just does a really good job of just, you know, Embedding herself with with the punks and who were reprehensible, I must say. As much yeah. as I love a lot of that music, it was like you really have to come to terms. I mean, I guess again, this comes to the art, the artist thing, but a lot of these people were just very clearly horrible human beings. Oh, definitely, yeah. They they didn't get into punk because you know they thought they were going to make money. They got into it just because they were having a chance to push people around, get in fights, spit on people, and you know just rebel. And what are they rebelling against? None of them could have told you. I don't think. So. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, against stuff and things stuff and things pretty much that's so, that's what i rebel against every day so in my punk life <laughs> you are very punk yeah you come in there oh. spitting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> i'm an undercover punk that's uh <laughs> oh there's a movie title for you i think uh, someone will make it <laughs> undercover punk <laughs> <laughs> So I've got those- I wear my mohawk on the inside. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's uh, it chafes a little, but uh, you know. Starring Jonah Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so now I've shot through those two real quick. So that's just two titles for you to look at. The other thing, because I didn't really have a third movie picked, because what I actually started doing was something that my workmates gave me a decided I'm a real movie geek when I told them about it. Um, uh, I actually started watching some of my old favorite movies, but turning the color off on my television for what I called a monochromed movie. So it came out of a discussion on Twitter about someone watching a movie and their TV had broken 
well, back in the 80s, and they only had black and white. And they really enjoyed it and didn't realise it was a colour movie for a, another 20 years after that. So I thought, well, that could be interesting because we could get quite a lot of kind of almost film noir sort of elements if we did that. So I cranked down the, the colour on my TV. And I had a look at a couple of films. I looked at The Fifth Element for a start, which is definitely oh. not... feels like something out the 1930s. The set design on that is so amazing to look at. And then you take the colour down and you feel like you're in a Busby Berkeley musical. Because uh, especially in the latter half of the film, we we're on the up on the, uh, the the planet of pleasure, and it's just the set design just really pops in the black and white. Uh, and then I went on to Miracle Mile, and that was probably oh. the most the, probably oh, the wow. most film uh, I've had. And I I, I mentioned it. I, uh, well, I got to suggest it because I was on Facebook, and I'm Steve DeJarnett, who's uh, on Facebook as well. I managed to get a, become a Facebook friend of his years ago, and he was. Uh, putting up a few things. I thought, well, why don't I watch that? And I told him about that. And he said, yeah, well, he said, I'd love to do a film noir version of it. And when I watched it, he has. There's some scenes in the early hours of the morning as the sun's coming up and the the, the mist is in the background that is just full-on film, film noir when you look at it in black and white. It does have a very 40s feel anyway, too, that movie. It's uh, There's just something about it, even even though it is set in sort of present day when it was made, but it it does have that. I suppose it's the diner scenes and those types of things that uh, the, the, the characters will feel out of the 1940s, definitely. Mm. So, and even the car he drives is is a is a vintage 1950s, I think, car. So, um, it's for me that that really really worked. And oddly enough, the one which is the movie that I'm still never ever sure I like it as much as other people, but I keep going back to it is The Shining, and The Shining in black and white is scarier than The Shining in colour. The opening scenes where there's there's just the flashes of what's coming up and that slow motion shot with no sound of the blood coming out the elevator. Right. And it is phenomenal to look at. And I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched part of it because it was late at night. I just put it on to have a quick look at. And I thought, well, that's, that's just the opening scenes. Watching by myself at one o'clock in the morning was creepy as fuck. So, I've... wow. As an aside, I just saw somebody post a frame comparison between the axe scene in The Shining and a similar scene in the 1920s horror, uh, The Phantom Carriage, which of course is black and white. And um, a lot of the composition, and um, I guess it's just a very similar scene of a guy taking an axe to the door where there's two other people hiding behind it. Um, and so that makes me wonder how much in general Kubrick was uh, cribbing from, you know, 20s, 30s horror in The Shining, which is something I'd never really thought of until I saw that. So, Well, we get influences from all over, don't we? It's uh, especially artists. So I would imagine that would have been in the back of his mind, perhaps, or maybe he just ripped it wholesale. But uh... I yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a long history of quotation, and there's also a long history of, well, this is a logical way to cover this scene, so it happens to look kind of similar, you know, um, and I, I don't necessarily know which was at play, but it, I, I think what what is suggestive is the idea that if you look at something in black and white, you suddenly have easier ways of making those connections to movies from the past that you might not when the color palette is so wildly different. Exactly. And when it's something very familiar to you as well, I mean, I I watched Jaws in black and white uh, this week as well, Ooh. and I and I even though it didn't 
change too much for it. What I tried doing, I tried watching it in a different way. So film geek, hello. Um, instead of watching <laughs> the main actors, I tried watching the background actors this time because I've seen the movie <laughs> 20, 30 times. So I kept my eye on background actors, you know, parts of the, the screen that you weren't really supposed to be focusing on. So and when you mean background actors, you mean extras? Extras, uh, other cast members that are you've seen that are hanging in the background, like, you know, they're looking at the sheriff's deputy in the background rather than the... Ah, gotcha. Okay. On the background uh, in the, the scene where there's the, 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 the face billboard and there's the main the big long scene going on with the three of them, but I'm watching the people behind. And I discovered one interesting fact is that when Robert Shaw is on screen as Quint, you cannot look anywhere else. You, can't <laughs> you keep coming back to looking at him. And the one time I managed to take my eyes off him briefly during the Indianapolis speech, and I watched in the background looking at Hooper, not at Quint. And mm-hmm. he's made a really great acting choice. He just stays entirely still. There's, he barely blinks so that all your focus is constantly pulled back to Quint and that speech. He doesn't, mm. I mean, he's, he's in there the whole time. But all he does is just get very, very still once that story starts and basically almost fades into the background. So That's a sign of a confident actor when they know that they don't have to do much to make the scene work and that the scene's not about them. Um, there's a moment in a, one of the movies coming up that uh, one of the actors who doesn't really know what to do just does a lot more than they need to. In, and I was thinking about that, um, how if an actor's at sea, they can just get really ticky rather than just kind of trust that the scene is not about them and let it unfold. There we go. Well, so that's our movies. And as I say, I will try to get on to Raging Bull next week. But as I watched Godfrey Ho's Full Metal Ninja instead this week, it's possibly, <laughs> I wouldn't put any big bets on it. But <laughs> So what is the score scorecard now? Godfrey Ho 23, Scorsese 2? <laughs> about that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Hey, come, come at me, Internet. Come at me. So. <laughs> All right. So we are now um, half an hour in or so, and uh, we are ready for the... Um, the actual right? topic. Yeah. Yes. Our yes. presentation, if you like. Yeah. So, so to recap, what are we actually looking at? Three films directed by or starring a Kiwi set in the film noir era. And what did we watch? Well, the first film we watched, or we should say all three at the start. Uh, yeah, Mulholland yep, Falls, directed by Lee Tamahori. Um, Cast a Deadly Spell, directed by Martin Campbell. And Rough Magic, starring a uh, young Russell Crowe, who is uh, contentiously but accurately a New Zealander. Uh, and so we'll, um, I think the initial pitch was also that they were films in Hollywood in the late 40s that were very film noir And some of them may have seemed that way on the surface. But as uh, we go through this, we'll get increasingly far away from both Hollywood and film noir. Uh, so... Let's start with Mulholland Falls. Right over here, there's a uh, plot summary I pr- wrote earlier. Uh, when the pulverized body of a voluptuous brunette is found in the desert outside of Los Angeles, it's up to the four detectives known as the Hat Squad to find the murderer. But this one goes all the way to the top, and head detective Max Hooper has a, excuse me, Max Hoover has a secret connection to the victim that could cost him everything. Dun, dun, uh, dun. Now, yes. <laughs> now, uh, Mulholland Falls is the Hollywood debut of Lee Tamahori. Uh, it came out in 1996 following the success of Once Were Warriors in 1994. Uh, and he seemed certainly primed 
for success with Nick Nolte in the uh, lead role as Max Hoover uh, and the remainder of the hat squad making up uh, consisting of Chaz Palminteri from The Usual Suspects, uh, Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs, Chris Penn also from Reservoir Dogs, as well as True Romance. Uh, Treat, you've got Treat Williams, you've got John Malkovich. You actually have a young Kyle Chandler, not that anyone knew who that was at the time. You've got Jennifer Connolly, you've got Melanie Griffith, the list goes on. You've got uh, famous... Oh, yeah. Famous DOP Haskell Wexler, uh, who shot Bound for Glory. Uh, there you've got Quentin Tarantino's editor, Sally Menke, working on it. What could go wrong? Um, <laughs> well, um, so that depends on who you ask. And um, in fact, Chaz, I, one of my favorite uh, internet features as a side is um, the AB Club has long been doing a column called Random Roles, where Will Harris will speak to an actor about. 20 or 30, basically as many films as they can get them to talk about and tell stories about. And, um, and the catch is the actor doesn't know until the phone call starts, what films they're going to talk about. And, uh, so I had a look at both Chaz Palmentier and Michael Madsen have talked to him about, uh, Mulholland Falls, uh, which is named because when we first meet the, um, hat squad, uh, who are based on the real life, uh, it's, I think the same story that Gangster Squad, the more recent Ruben Fleischer film, was based on about this anti-gang, anti-corruption unit in the late 40s in L.A. that used roughneck tactics to keep organized crime out of town. And they uh, take this guy up into the hills in Chicago and or um, this guy from Chicago up into the hills of L.A. and say they're taken into the falls. They're like, there ain't no falls in L.A. And um well, there are if you go down a uh, hill on your uh, back very fast. Um, why that's the name of the film, uh, we can talk about that or we can just let that pass. But anyway, Lee Tamahori had in mind a two-hour-plus sort of Chinatown-esque sort of character-based epic that sort of brought together this bigger world. And this, um, we, we learned that the Atomic Energy Commission is uh the big power you know in these film noirs there always tends to be some kind of organization that the our protagonist shouldn't tangle with and that's the uh apparently the atomic energy commission or the uh, big bad boys of the 40s we we learn a lot about um atomic energy in fact in this whole series but we'll get to that more later and uh when the producers saw the final cut um, or the cut that was in progress, because in fact, there was a 10 or 12 minute prologue, which featured many of the characters uh, that are minimized in the final cut. Um, they said, no, we just need to get to the action. We're not going to have all this stuff in Las Vegas with people watching atomic explosions, which were never, uh, the effects were never finished for outside their windows. So we just get this brief um, film of, uh, that plays over the opening credits that shows what this event might have been, but without any of the actual context. So from Chaz Palminteri's perspective, it's still a great movie and it's not fair that it's overlooked. Um, Michael Madsen uh, is convinced that the reason it doesn't work is because it's all about the hat squad. And, you know, there's this whole scene where they go out into the um, desert and suddenly they go into uh meet john malkovich and two of them are missing and we're in it got ruined in the editing um i'm not personally convinced that michael madsen's performance is so great that we needed more of it but um regardless there is no question that what we're seeing is not 
the director's vision. But hey, I've tipped my hand a bit much as to how I feel about this. Um, so let, I let's was hear- I'm still in the dark as to how you were feeling about it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what, what did you guys think of Mulholland Falls, first of all? Well, I've seen it before. And I I felt it like it, it's, but it was a very long time ago. And I remember it being just one of those things I was watching on video with a friend and it, the attention wasn't very much on it. It felt like one of those films that just kind of missed the mark. And I would say it still feels like that. But there are some, it looks amazing. I think we can all agree on that. Oh, definitely. It's, it's uh, it it and it's just dripping with fifties music. The style, the feel, and the the cinematography is just is just great. Um, but it's I yeah, it a little overlit actually. Um, oh, okay, though, well, not personally. being an editor. It's okay. No, well, that that, that was just me. I just felt like it could have been a bit more moody in its lighting. Um, a bit more noir. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe it wasn't going for that, but it feels like the characters are so embodying noir. And I think also that it falls into the – a lot of um, period pieces fall into this whole like, hey, we're set in the 50s or 40s, but everybody just bought their clothes yesterday and everything's just a bit shiny and new mm-hmm. because you know we've got these cars that nobody wants to damage that have been preserved since the 40s. And so everything is, is – ju- and it just feels a bit like playing – dress up and and the I have to agree with that and the writing yes, it, really feel that way it does show, it does look awfully shiny it's it's just one of those films that misses the mark for me and watching it a second time I I still can't work out quite why it's because the elements are there it's um there's there's not a lot of depth in characterization uh past Nick Nolte but even then, that's there's not that much depth there. But it's I still can't quite. It I think the story is so much ado about nothing. Even though it is a murder mystery, it's not much of a mystery. It's, but I don't know that that's really what it's about either. Well, they don't so, work very hard to solve it. No, because it's, <laughs> it's um, Nick Nolte a great performance. So, what about you? Skeets, you oh, weigh in here. I, I quite enjoyed it myself. I, I felt it kind of just unraveled a bit near the end. It started near the in the last fifteen minutes or so. I was starting to to lose focus on it, just kind of going well. It's but it's. I found it quite intriguing. I had never seen the movie. In fact, when you uh, mooted it, I my brain immediately went, "We're watching a David Lynch film," because I was thinking <laughs> Mulholland Drive. And so when it popped up on on uh, on the uh, the message you sent me, I had to go, "Okay." reset my brain i'm not gonna be watching something quite bizarre but it's it, it for me it felt the most classically noirish of the the three films we watched and it's it must have been quite the learning curve i reckon for lee tamahori because he's gone from a a well respected new zealand film but on a fairly small budget to a nearly 30 million dollar american film mm. stuffed with a ton of talent. There's probably got to be some egos. I mean, Daniel Baldwin's in this, so there's, there's definitely some <laughs> egos in this uh, this cast. And I think every day must have been a pissing match. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it has but, to have been. Yeah, but it does feel that there's there's a few things missing from it. I mean, Ed Lauter, uh, character actor, turns up. Oh, yeah. That's up with that. One and line. One line, boom. And it's, it's like, was he meant to be in it longer and it's most of the scenes have been dropped because he just... 
seemed to pop out of, out of nowhere. But and there was it. such warmth to his character in yeah. terms of how people were talking about him when he came in. There was just that feeling like he had been well established, but yeah, no, he had. Really feels that there was a, a lot of a lot of footage, as you say, that should have been there just to introduce yeah. us more to the character. I think possibly even you know, and a Lee Tamahori director's cut could be quite interesting to see, but. Why were there so many uncredited actors, do you think? I mean, we have Bruce Dern, Rob Lowe, William Peterson, Louise Fletcher, and Virginia Madsen, all in there, uncredited. You've got Aaron Neville as the the singer. Oh, he was credited. He was credited. He goes to credit. He was credited. Rob Lowe's in there. Because Rob Lowe turned up, and I thought, I didn't see him in there. And my brain's shot him, because I'm, I'm, you know what I'm like with, you know, Hey, it's that guy, but sometimes yeah. I can't pick up on who it is. It's the, it's the opening scene where they're roughing the guys up in the restaurant, yeah. and he's in William it for Peterson. like 12 seconds. Yeah. He's and there, so... William Peterson's in there. William Peterson's the guy that gets roughed up. So um, Gil Grissom from CSI mm. and uh, Live and Die in L.A. is in there, and playing a really and Bruce Stern has several, has several good scenes, actually. he's So it's quite strange that he was not... Um, credited at all and in fact looking at um trivia on imdb jack nicholson was originally offered that role of chief bill parker but he suggested he recommended bruce stern for the part i know one thing that sometimes happens is that if um an actor feels like their name is going to appear too low on the credits they ask to be uncredited so it doesn't rather than having their name appear ninth Ah, and, and, or and not being or not being able to get the coveted, and or and, with, yeah, um, you know, um, against the parents by, <laughs> yeah, and, and some of it might just be like you know they're making the film and they're like shit we're down an actor tomorrow and Andrew McCarthy's like I got a bud hey Rob what are you doing tomorrow kind of thing, <laughs> um, and that maybe I mean I. It'd be great to hear Lee Tamahori tell tales about it. I sent you guys uh, mm. an interview that I found, um, and it was a combination of two interviews, actually. And it t- the first one, he's kind of like, I'll put out my director's cut. And then the second one's like, yeah, the director's cut wasn't really done, uh, and the visual effects aren't done. So, it w- I mean, one of the things that I think is striking about the third film that we'll get to is that the – which was the third one I watched was – the breath of fresh air when it's like, oh, it's an actual realized female character. Um, and, you know, Jennifer Conway is such a cipher here that just mm. pretty much exists for her breasts. Um, and, well, from a not male a pleasure reason. perspective. Not a bad reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm in full agreement there. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be fair, I mean, I don't, this film is basically, it's like Nick Nolte, the cop who goes to the psychiatrist and wants to drive the car and the two other cops. So, you know, and that, I and those are commentaries Roland. I thought he, I thought he really was one of my favorite parts in the movie. Cause mm. I mean, Chaz has always been kind of a, a supporting actor, but he gets such a, a nice big part in this one that, it, you know, the other two, as you say, Michael Madsen and, and Chris Penn, Chris Penn especially seems to fade into the background. He's there, but I couldn't tell you anything he did in the film. His arc is troubling though. The uh, Chaz Palamentary's arc is that he's, um, going to a psychiatrist 
because he is one of the more um, to deal with his emotions and not to be so violent and what have you. And by the end of it, he embraces violence and he says he feels so much better, <laughs> better than he has in, in a long time, which is a troubling <laughs> art in any year, I think, not just in the, not just looking at it now. I think at any time that would be a <laughs> troublesome it makes you at. wonder because there's two writers credited and and as we often know in Hollywood films and the weird writers arbitration, who knows how many other people were there and also with um, opinionated actors, how much they decided to make things up on the day. Um, mm. You know, what was the thing about because for me, there's there's nothing that's really obvious about like, why did anyone feel this was the film that had to be made? Mm. And I I feel like, you know. Because sometimes you can see a bad movie and you can see, I know what they were going for. I know what they wanted to do. And it just, this is what went wrong. But here it just feels like that kind of burning pulse of why we want to get together and make this film is just not quite there. I have to agree. It's uh, it's such a thin storyline. And I think it was more about wanting to do a story on the Hat Squad and not caring about what they were actually going to be doing. And I think they, they were trying to look at the morality of who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. And was there any difference between what they, what they do because the hat squad were killing people or just roughing people up just to get them out of the way, but for justice. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know that anything was just really landed on in, in quite the right way. Well, I know one thing that was landed on, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is the desert. But, and um, speaking of which, and I'm not the kind of viewer that like, is always thinking how to be like, oh, this, this, this. But was it really obvious to me when they find – it was really obvious to me when they find this pulverized body in the middle of the desert and no explanation. I'm like, well – if something has had this happen to them, I can guess where it came from. Um, and yet we have to wait roughly 97 minutes f until um, our protagonists are in a similar situation to work out <laughs> what could have caused this body in the middle of the desert to create an impact into the ground and pulverized its bones. Did anyone else sit, be like, yeah, we saw that coming or was that a big surprise? Am I just uniquely persp um, perspicacious here? <laughs> well, I, I, I again, that, oh. I didn't guess at it, but I didn't really spend too much time thinking about it. I thought, well, the, the movie's going to explain it to me eventually. So <laughs> right. I just, I just you know, was more you know, interested in the characters uh, going along there as opposed to trying to work out the, the mystery of it. And as I, say, as I say, it's not a massive, you know, complicated usual suspects -y type of one where you've got to Not link together 400 different things. It's a fairly linear sort of plot. But uh, as I say, I quite enjoyed uh, you know following along until it got near the end and it just started to, you know, a few things just didn't seem to stack up for me. They didn't seem to mm. quite pay off the, the, uh, the premise. Yeah, I saw, I saw it in the late 90s on video. And uh, so the, uh, and I, I can't remember whether I was surprised or whether I cared at the time <laughs> <laughs> about about how the murder was was committed. But um, yeah, it's just one of those ones that misses the mark. Uh, I feel that that one you mentioned, the uh, 
Ruben, Ruben Fleischer gangster thing that is also similar to this gangster squad yeah. also does the same thing. It's, it, it sets itself up. It's, it looks great, but again, it misses the mark. And I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. I think, I think the reason for the story was more about looking at the, the morality, the blurred morality between um, the hat squad and what else is going on and they don't care about what the story is that they're actually trying to solve Uh, that's just a guess i think a lot of people mistake a good uh an interesting thing for a good story and a story is more than just like something Mm -hmm. that's interesting it's something that actually has narrative shape and um and the most successful people that have worked with this stuff, like, um, you know, James Elroy, uh, I mean, obviously, L.A. Confidential is a movie we could have used that's better than any of the movies that we did use. That, oh, of um, you know, digs down into a very specific story within the story that has stakes and kind of builds and reveals things, but has, you know, se- several really strong, finely drawn characters that have individual you have individual investment in that have consequence. And Tomahori said, interestingly, like he knew that like when LA confidential only made like 50 million at the box office until it won its Oscar. And then it went up afterwards. But he's like, he's like, that's a great movie. And if that couldn't succeed, then there just really isn't any appetite for film noir full stop, you know? And that's, that's something that may be true as well as that, especially in the nineties, it was just like such a dated um, setting that people couldn't connect to it anymore. But there was one thing I neo noir and the ninety things like um, I mean after Dark My Sweet was around about the same time. There's uh-huh. this, I mean I, I looked up the sort of nineties neo noir and the list was was fantastically long. So there were definitely mm. people making it, but oh sure, Red Rock guess, West. Um, yeah. There's lots, but none of those films were particularly successful and particularly the yeah. period pieces i think i mean because there's more home video market yeah than, than the big big cinema box office releases so yeah if you could get two actors that that had name value to um and get one of them to take their kit off and make the film for you know three million dollars you could probably make a tidy profit off it but when you go for 30 million dollars mm, yeah. not so not so tricky, easy tricky prospect yeah yeah. Um, interestingly, I mean, in terms of bringing it back to our through arc, which is New Zealand people going to Hollywood, because Tom Ahoy is, of course, one of a number of people uh, mm-hmm. from New Zealand who did. And, um, you know, this did not remotely kill his career, of course. He made The Edge after this, uh, which is about Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin surviving in the wild. And that was a success. And off the back of that, he got um, Along Came a Spider, which was the um, Morgan Freeman thriller and the James Bond film Die Another Day, the triple uh, X sequel State of the Union. And um, that was, you know, a reasonably successful series of films. Uh, even State of the Union, he replaced Rob Cohen, who did the original one. Uh, and then, uh, of course, his famous uh, arrest uh, when he was dressed as a woman and propositioned an undercover police officer. Um, he still managed to direct Next, which was the um, Philip K. Dick adaptation starring Nicolas Cage, which I haven't seen. Uh, and then The Devil's Double, which is actually a film I quite like, about um, the guy who played Saddam Hussein's body double. Um, but then, since then, the only film he's made is Mahana, the New Zealand film 
in 2016, which is an adaptation of The Patriarchs. So, you know, he had he had a decent run in Hollywood, but he seems to, you know, not be likely to go back there anytime soon, as uh, near as I can tell. You're missing out his, um, he did a episode of The Sopranos too, didn't he? I think. Oh, he might, yeah, I think he might have done some television as well, and also some mm. um, TV commercials as well. And I mean, he's part of this whole, um, you know, he worked with Jeff Murphy, who of course went to, to Hollywood. And so you have these early films that had Jeff Murphy and Lee Tamahori as like a. I think a boom up originally on uh, Goodbye Pork Pie. So um, you know those those films are just stacked with uh, names of people who came to Hollywood um, to succeed. And we and I, I thought about trying to get a Jeff Murphy film in here, but I don't think he's worked in this time period. But we did watch Young Guns too recently, which is a reminder of some of his uh, peaks there. Oh, just looking at the IMDb page for uh, Lee Tamahori. So he was did do an episode of The Sopranos. He has just done this year an episode of a TV show called Billions. Uh, oh, okay. The Paul Giamatti, Damian Lewis show. So it's now in its uh, fifth, fifth season. Fifth season. Yeah. I've, I've watched about the first two seasons of that, and it's very compelling stuff. So no he's still working. <laughs> oh, and he has a new film called Emperor that's in post-production starring Adrian Brody uh, and Paz Vega and Thomas Krishman and Oliver Platt, which looks like an action epic. So that's exciting. So hopefully um, he is, uh, he's is he got his groove back and going to uh, keep bringing things to the world. Although given COVID-19, who knows how far they got before. <laughs> Absolutely. And just one final word on Mulholland Falls before we leave, just to prove that IMDb is I've got not... one other thing. I've got one other thing. Oh, oh, oh one, <laughs> so one, one, one almost final word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mulholland Falls trivia, just to prove that IMDb isn't always on the ball. It does state here quite clearly that this was the first American film directed by Australian Lee Tamahori. So there you go. Because I've edited that, and that is the first edit I've ever made to the Internet Movie Database. So within the next five to ten working days, that should change. <laughs> ah, wow excellent we're in right in the middle of things that's great we go. we'll see we're, we're getting things moving for you there internet movie database get your shit together but <laughs> the, the one thing i want to bring up is i just want to bring up one uh actor in this movie who did not get credited and will never get credited because he's a stunt performer uh buddy joe hooker uh, who was the uh the pilot of the plane and the climactic scenes Oh, nice. He, oh. Uh, I, I look, I was, when I was looking down there, I thought I recognize that name. I don't know why I recognize the stuntman's name. And he started his, he did his first stunt coordinating job in 1967 for a movie called The Game People Play. And from then on, he did uh, stunts for everything from Enter the Dragon, Blazing Saddles, uh, hop, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. It's just this mammoth list. He worked the, on Death Proof, right? That's the reason I recognized him, because... Yeah, because there's some great extras on there. 40 years down the track, he was doing stunts, car stunts for Death Proof, which is a movie I will defend to the death more than Quentin Tarantino. Well, I love that movie. Oh, it's great. And um, the, the DVD has some bonus features, which have interviews with him and some other stunties that are really yeah. terrific, because um, yeah. I w- recently revisited that and worked through them all. He got the big three of, of 70 stuntmen, or um, 60 to 70 stuntmen. And there's a scene in 
and death proof where a truck is splits in the, the final chasing splits the two cars goes off the road and rolls and that wasn't supposed to be a roll but the stunt he was from the who was in his 60s nearly 70s at the time said if you put a roll cage in this i'm rolling the truck so he rolled the truck <laughs> he didn't even get told to do that and then I was, that's what buddy joe hook has done recently because he's 72 i think now and he was a stunt driver on the fate of the furious in 2017 so oh still going he's still doing stunts uh, to this day into his 70s so good on you buddy joe hooker you will never get an, an oscar you'll never get a credit but um i salute you hopefully one of these days they'll actually bring stunts in for oscars i know people have been campaigning mm, for that right. for years long time but it's i just don't think it'll ever happen i remember there was a stuntman awards show in the 80s and the only thing i remember was that they uh they showed a clip from amsterdam and had zelda rubenstein introducing that which uh, mm. Wow. Hearing Zelda Rubenstein pronounce Amsterdam is just always <laughs> of the eighties that I still remember to this day. Well, sadly, if they if they're not going to create a a place in the Oscars for stuntmen for Mad Max Fury Road, then it's never going to happen, is it? Happen, no. it's they should have just handed every award to them and just let them go home. So, <laughs> hey, Absolutely. just a just to follow up on Emperor, I just did a little bit of Googling around it. And in fact, Lee Tamahori shot that film in 2014, and it's been stuck in legal limbo ever since with the producer. So um, that's uh, unlikely to be coming out in 2020 um, unless they decide that they're actually able to cash in on that asset. But it just seems to have um, be one of those buried films that you know maybe someday will come out like that weird david o russell film that never got finished that suddenly got released eight years after they shot it um anyway but you had a last fact as well darren well, that, that was, uh, that was no no i i got my i got my penultimate fact in i got the ultimate fact in on buddy joe hooker so um should we all right to yes let's go two? to cast a deadly spell cast a deadly spell Excellent. Well, Caster did the spell. This is a a film that I I saw pr- pretty much w- um, would have been not too long after it came out here in New Zealand. So it was a HBO. Did it get theatrical? No, no. It's a it was an HBO movie, so it uh, got a video release here. And I have a feeling I could be wrong because we have a way of painting our own history. But I I think I saw it with my with my aunties uh, it's uh was this uh, i think we got this one out of uh Videon in uh, mount roskill and watched cast a deadly spell and i think i wanted to see it because of um fred ward and david warner because i've always been into actors uh, ever since i could could say the words christopher lee or vincent price <laughs> it's uh um now, to give you a little bit of an idea as to what this thing is all about, Caster did the spell. It's uh, in 1948, Los Angeles. Everyone uses magic. Everyone except hard-boiled private detective H. Philip Lovecraft, who refuses for personal reasons. Lovecraft is hired by a mysterious rich man to recover a stolen book, the Necronomicon. Investigating, he finds that the book holds the key to taking over the world by magical means, releasing the old ones. Now, you can add to that, there are also, in the background, certainly not the main part of this film, but there's also vampires, werewolves, and all sorts of magic going on, but it's just 
off to the side of a scene. It's um, it's one I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed it when I first saw it. It's um, I was drawn to it by Fred Ward, who as um, I was a fan of since Remo Unarmed and Dangerous, which was a staple in my household. We uh, was on TV late at night, and I think we taped it and watched it over and over and over again. I've never and, heard of that. Is that the same as The Adventures of Remo Williams, or is that something uh, else? Yeah, that's same title. Exactly yeah, the same title. one, yes. Same film, yeah. That was, I think that was, that was definitely a title... Yeah, it was uh, called The Adventure Begins in the States. So okay. Yeah. Ah, right. Yeah, that's, I remember that from 80s uh, trailers. And then later on, uh, years down the track, I discovered it had that alternate title, which happened quite a lot, I think, with, with Kiwi films. Uh, with Kiwi cinema, they would do quite a bit of retitling on things. Like Absolutely. That. I have no idea why. Now, well, I think in the spell. States, The Adventure Begins was marked because they're like, The Adventure is also ending. <laughs> Oh, that's unfair. That's unfair for that movie. But we, we can talk about that one some other time. But Cast a Deadly Spell, it was made 1991, had a budget of $6 million. It's um, so about, uh, that would be, what, $11 million or so now, America, or, or possibly more. Uh, it was shot in 37 days. It uh, was directed by Martin Campbell, uh, produced by Gail Ann Hurd. Oh, yeah, now, I noticed. It's uh, now Gail Ann Hurd is prolific. She has um, produced. Uh, I haven't got quite my. Uh, so she's I... been married three times and produced films by all her husbands. So James Cameron, uh-huh. she produced the Terminator, and then she yes. married Brian De Palma and produced Raising Kane, and then she married Jonathan Hensley and produced uh, The Punisher, but has also um, produced dozens of other films as well for people she hasn't married. So, um, Alien, Elizabeth, Tremors. Is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it helps. But um, and she seems to be connected to the DC universe because she got, um, or sorry, um, the Marvel universe because she got Punisher Warzone made as well as two of the Hulk movies. Uh, and Dante's Peak with Roger Donaldson. Um, she's on uh, Virus, Clock Stoppers, uh, The Water Dance for some reason. Um, oh, yeah, she did Aliens as well as Terminator and The Abyss and Terminator 2. So she had a good run with Cameron. Um, but uh, yeah, and Eon Flux. Um, the Rocks, Welcome to the Jungle is another Jonathan Hensley film. So she's done um, a lot, I think. And, and also The Walking so. Dead. So yes, she's she's doing pretty well there. So she's done a lot. It's Martin Campbell. He was born in Hastings, New Zealand. He moved to London, where his career started. So he, I, looking on his IMDb page, it doesn't look like he has ever actually worked in New Zealand. I could be wrong. There might be something I'm missing there, but it does look like he has never worked in New Zealand. He, his first film, which he directed on, was The Sex Thief in 1973. He's, he's uh, gone up from there, thankfully. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I he think he's probably pretty up during The Sex Thief, to be fair. <laughs> Well, oh dear. Normally, I'm the one with the dad jokes, but uh, oh dear, that was that hurt. But uh, he's he has directed episodes of Minder and The Professionals and Bergerac. He has moved on to two of the uh, arguably two of the best shows um, that Britain produced in the '80s: Riley Ace of Spies and Edge of Darkness. From there, he did parlay that into a 
into a Hollywood career, but uh, Cast of Deadly Spell wasn't quite Hollywood at that time. It would have been No Escape in 1994, then Goldeneye, which, of course, the James Bond film, which he also managed to do Casino Royale uh, years later. He did the two Zorro movies, Vertical Limit, Green Lantern, which we're all still talking about today. It's... um, and one film which I was particularly fond of, he made in 2017, The Foreigner. That's a great film. Exactly. Jackie Chan yeah. and Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan. Uh, I recommend that movie to you all. It is, if you haven't seen it, Skeets, I get on that it. shit. I haven't seen it. I'll have a look at that. Oddly enough, yeah, yeah, Wacky Coincidence, one of his early films, was once again retitled over here because you said No Escape. That was Escape from Absalom when it was released yes. over here. Absolutely, yes. Another ludicrously specific connection there. And um, his latest film is going to be a reteaming with Pierce Brosnan, by the way, called Across the River and Into the Trees, which is uh, a Hemingway adaptation. Uh, So that'll be... It's on its way. I don't really know how far along they are on that. Ah, I don't see it on his uh, IMDb page. That's because Wikipedia exists. (laughs) <laughs> uh, oh, so Wikipedia must be right, of course. Now, well, IMDb is <laughs> never wrong, but you know. <laughs> apart, from, apart from whether you're a New Zealander or an Australian, it's never wrong. <laughs> now, as to the writer, there's uh, the writer is Joseph Doherty. Now, um, he went on to write the sequel to this uh, this movie, which is called Witch Hunt, which was directed by Paul Schrader, starring Dennis Hopper as the Fred Ward role of... Um, H. Philip Lovecraft. Now, uh, it's, uh, he. this film was nominated for a Ray Bradbury Award by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. So that gives it a... Uh, it gives it some class there. Uh, to give you an idea of some of the actors, so we've got Fred Ward in there, we've got David Warner. Now, in the same year, 1991, David Warner did a three-episode guest shot on Twin Peaks, he played Uncle Vanya, appeared in T- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, <laughs> two other nondescript films, and played Chancellor Gorkin in Star Trek VI. So what is David Warner's claim to fame? Because I can't even picture him. David Warner, basically. He's, right. He tends to play the villains. He's got that, that nicely clipped English accent. Uh, I mean, what's he been in? He's been in... Oh, everything. um, He's an credit, so I'm looking at here. It's um, one of his most famous, or certainly uh, one that did bring him to some fame. He was the evil genius in Time Bandits. Time after time, he was. uh, The Omen is what I'm seeing here. um, Yes, that I've seen him in. But Malcolm McDowell and David Warner and Mary Steenburgen in Time After Time is a great film. Straw Dogs. Waxwork. Jack the Ripper, Straw Dogs. Yes, yes. it's. Uh, yeah. He was in Tom Jones, which I believe is one of his first big films. Okay, so a lot of he... stuff I haven't seen mostly. Yeah, oh, pretty much. Yeah, but he a great actor. He was in Tron in the Mouth of Madness. He was the uh, uh, murderous butler in uh, Titanic. So two episodes of Remington Steel. He was the father in Company of Wolves. And of course, he was on Scooby Doo. So. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's excellent. He's a he's a favourite of mine who just keeps turning up again and again. He was in a, a quite a famous Star Trek Next Generation 
a two-parter called Chain of Command, where he played a Cardassian called Golmadred. I'm really letting my uh, my geek flag fly here. It's there. All are, right. Why, uh, why don't I gently steer uh, the herd back towards <laughs> the film that we're actually talking about? <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm a. It's uh, and Fred Ward. It's uh, during his the period of this film 1990 he made tremors catch a fire miami miami blues and henry in june miami and is so good to me always feels like an actor out of time because if he would have been born to be in his 40s in the 1940s he would have been a perfect film noir actor agreed. He, agreed. always got that world weary slightly grizzled look and it's his delivery in this i mean it's you could not have picked a better person to play Harry Philip Lovecraft, which is a nice callback to our previous episode. So, <laughs> absolutely, and we actually even uh, I mentioned it for the first time on that episode, which is why we're doing this episode. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> was to find an excuse to watch this movie. It's it's one that I had a lot of fun with. I I don't know if you guys enjoyed it, but I, I've certainly had a history with it. But it's um, I've never heard of this movie. So um, when you you. They handed that title to me. I'm just like, well, here we go again. We're going, heading into something that Darren knows all about I've never heard of. But, yeah, really did enjoy it. And it was because I was expecting three neo-noirs and to have that opening bit saying, it's you know, we're in L.A. and everybody uses magic. Boom. And isn't that the greatest, like, kind of, it's there's great. no 10, 15-minute opening <laughs> explanation. There is no multi-paragraph-like thing. It's just like, here it is, deal with it, we move on. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's it. We, uh, uh, yeah, ninety minutes here. We're not doing twenty minutes to explain how we've got magic. Everyone's got magic. That's it. Yeah. And then we just discovered that oh, also it rains blood in this world. <laughs> and, and there's there's no setup. There's no like let's prepare the audience for this. It's just like yep, that's happening too. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was able. To, I, I'm able to suspend my disbelief, and it's years of Godfrey home movies have done this. So um, I was able to just. Just roll with that. I mean, if, if you spend time... I'm not going, complaining, but just happened? to be clear. <laughs> Absolutely. And a way to link it to our last episode, of course, is that this film is a good way to describe it, or certainly I feel is, Stuart Gordon meets Raymond Chandler. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it has, uh, it has yes, a nicely please. splattery quality to it, although there isn't that much of those moments. It really does milk those moments when they happen. Oh, yeah, some really nice practical effects. And this, you know, and I'm got my son down to come down now and have a look at some of the climax just to have a look at a, a nice you know f- practical effect movie monster so um yeah yeah it's 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 I, I, as i say didn't know anything about it can definitely recommend right off the bat before we give, talk any more about it i'm giving it a thumbs up i liked it mm-hmm. yeah, i'm very glad to hear you say that okay go on doug break my heart <laughs> no I, I i won't break your heart but i'll gently wound it um i i i really enjoyed it for a while uh I maybe being a bit too literalist, I I kept struggling with why is this character H.P. Lovecraft, and why, um, and and what is the why is he not using magic? And that that was the thing is it felt like this. And there's a lot that I really liked about it, and the the strengths that you guys have all talked about is there, and just the joy of sort of the arbitrary nature of a lot of it is really. Um, thrilling and fun and Fred Ward's great to watch. Uh, and so there's, all, there's all of those attributes and I don't want to downplay any of those. This is my favorite movie of the three. Um, mm-hmm. but 
I did, it, and this is something that's interesting about the sequel as well. It, it feels like magic in this is meant to be a metaphor for something, but it's a, a bit weird in that it's like it's not clear what it's a metaphor for. And interestingly, in Witch Hunt, um, which I haven't seen, but I've read the plot summary of it rather becomes explicitly a metaphor for communism. And there's a senator that, you know, is calling people to Congress and, and saying, you know, have you, you know, we need to outlaw magic in this country and all of this. Um, but that, that reading seems entirely absent from this film, which makes it interesting that it's the same writer for both. Um, and so that, that was a little strange. I mean, yeah, I find the, it's, uh, Certainly taking it from the point of view of Fred Ward's character, that it's just the the magic. It's um, all those characters had a sort of a laziness to them. The fact that they could use magic to do things that they they didn't need to uh, to solve something or they didn't need to. Uh, it was he was just sort of that character that is fighting against the normality. And in this case, normality was magic. It's um, yeah, it's just of, a, well, it's against projects that, or sorry, against progress because they say the future a lot and they say magic's the mm. future. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of magic being used for absolutely no reason. I mean, shaking a cocktail by magic. I mean, you, you've still got it. <laughs> it's very Harry Potter esque where it's like, oh look, I'm doing the dishes by that you lazy prick. Go and do the dishes. All right, don't magic up a, a spirit to go wash my dishes and make or magic it. fire in your hand to light a cigarette. Yeah, exactly. That's showing off, frankly. You know, but let's, I've, let's I've mention. Uh, absolutely, and let's mention how well cast this this film is. So it's Fred Ward is is the is the forties, the fifties. Yep. He is just a perfect private eye type character actor for this. He's just tremendous. And um, Julianne Moore, in one of oh, her, yes. her very early film roles, is fully formed. Essentially, she you can tell that she's a star. I mean, it's it's a it's a nice part. I I I would I wanted more from the female characters in the first two films because, you know, mm-hmm. the first as you said, the first one was very disposable. It was a, it was a bloke film, and Julie Mel was good in this, but I just wanted I wanted a little bit more of her. Mm. But uh, it's uh, you know it, was, it wasn't until our third movie I learned that we got a, as you said earlier on, we got a, a fully formed female character. Abs- that, absolutely, yeah. we did. But uh, and then you've got David Warner and Clancy Brown is. Uh, Great as a sort of slimy club owner. He's always a very, boss. very solid actor, Clancy Brown. I mean, any time you see him in there, he's going to give a good performance. Doesn't matter how good or bad the film is, and like most actors, he's been in some shit. But he's, as Christopher Lee said, the the uh, point of being in a shit film is that you're not the shit thing in it. You're the best <laughs> thing. In it. So <laughs> it's, I can imagine hearing Christopher Lee saying that in exactly those words. Yes, the point is not to be the terrible thing. So. <laughs> the point of being in a shit film is not to be the shit one in it. <laughs> he probably said Can... last year. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he was always saying that. You couldn't stop him. It's uh... <laughs> it's uh, the and there's some great lines in this movie too. Of course, the um, what was the one about the um, the Virgin in Hollywood? Does anyone remember that? The uh... Well, there's just uh, repeated references that there aren't any, which was also a little weird and creepy because certainly, like, they don't set an age limit on that. Uh, so I'm not <laughs> uh-huh. sure if we're, su- yes. we're supposed to believe that um, there are no children in this alternate Hollywood or if there's <laughs> something a bit creepier we don't want to contemplate. 
Oh, and of course, one of the the its character point, points for uh, for Fred Ward's character Lovecraft is he wears a terrible tie. It's um, by choice for some reason, and then there are some great lines along that. It's uh, the uh, that's quite a tie. Oh, thanks. Put up much of a fight? No, I snuck up behind it. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. there's some great lines in this movie. It's nicely hardboard, but it's got a really nice sense of, of humour to it. So, um, yeah, as I say, I, I just I, it was the second film I watched. I, I think I watched them in a reverse order from you guys. I finished with Mulholland Drive, and for me, it was a nice, refreshing change from what I was expecting. And it just, you know, it was it's it's a nice, good middle of the afternoon watch. You know, it's not one that you have to seriously sit down and think about. You just grab a beer, sit down, and and enjoy for you know ninety six minutes. So, yeah, that that'd be my endorsement as well. And yep, it, so it, does, the, it does uh, it does echo the uh, homophobia of the other film a bit as well, uh, which is a bit annoying. But you know, you can't have it all. But unfortunately, yeah, that was more more of the t- it's more of the time yeah. of the of that fifties period. Unfortunately, that would be. I mean, he does punch up a guy for no particular reason. It's the um, the uh, he's not resisting arrest or anything, and. Does uh, does give some sort of homosexual slurs, etc. But that unfortunately was kind of the attitudes of the. T- so we can't really judge it for yeah. that. You've, well, this, this, is kind, like- this is kind of a question of whether you can reconstruct these sorts of attitudes or find different approaches because it's not like they had to mm. tell that specific story. And there's a similar thing going on with race as well, particularly with the. Um, there's a there's a whole interesting and slightly um, out of tone subplot that they're importing these zombies to do construction from the indies or something and they're all black and there's a quite funny scene where they're trying to build these houses very unsuccessfully but it it seems a bit out of tone with the rest of the film to me do you guys agree or disagree i i suppose it didn't really again i my problem here is that the all three of these films are films i've seen before so my Initial reactions were about twenty years ago. It's red at this point, so it's so it's hard to look at it with new eyes, especially this one because this is a film I've I've seen quite a few times before, right? And it's and it ha- I have quite an affection for it, so I, I suppose I I don't know if the words are apologist, but I don't I, I'm not able to look at it in quite the same critical way that you guys would be. Well, I think there's, um, I always feel, and I've probably said this before, that, you know, you can only really fairly judge a film on its second viewing, because on the first viewing, you're kind of comparing it to what you think it's trying to do. And then on the second viewing, it's like, well, okay, I, I know what it's trying to do now, or I should know because I've seen what it's done. And then often, you know, second viewing, you have a totally different vibe on it. I remember when I saw Drive the first time, and I'm like, I thought this was supposed to be like a 70s you know, existentialist driving movie and it's got all this pop music and lighting and it's just really emotional and I, I I don't like it at all. And then the second time I'm like, oh, it's this really 80s expressionist, like post Michael Mann thief kind of thing. I love it. Um, and it was the same movie. It was just I didn't have a weird concept in my head of what it was trying to do. Yeah, well, that's, so, that's a good thing about coming into these movies completely, uh, you know, completely blank for me. It's, uh, all three of these movies are a blank slate. I knew nothing about them. So I was able to come in there and not not have any preconceived conceptions. I mean, the only preconceived notion I had was I was about to watch a film noir, and then that was right. the first, you know, first thirty seconds. 
So I was able to just completely reset my brain and just go, well, just let's just roll with it and see what happens. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, maybe not as sort of analyze that that scene as, as much as you did. I was just more interested because when I when our zombie turned up, I went, where do I know him from? He's this huge <laughs> dude, and I'm going, I know him, I know him, and I looked him up, and he was in the movie Freak, uh, which was one of my favorite guilty pleasures if there was such a thing. None of my pleasures guilty, thank you. But exactly. Freak, which is Alex Winter's insane infantile at times uh you know comedy just prosthetic comedy and he plays toad in it and it's uh, the, i didn't actually look up the character's name the actor's name he had died very young in his 30s but he had a, a brief role playing you know these these odd parts that never got to speak but um yeah just just getting a quick throwback to freaks there freak there uh, really uh, made my day actually because I, I watched great. it really, i used to watch it on a annual basis i think and I still watch it from time to time. It's a great, great little fun film. Well, I've never seen that, so I'll add that to the list. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Every you, time we record. you should certainly get on that. That's a, that is a lot of fun. That film. You've got to be in the right mood for it. I mean, it's it's as I say, it's it's not highbrow comedy in any way, shape, or form. Right. But it's a lot. Of fun. It's it's the film that brings you everything but shoes. It's. Uh, <laughs> And and that's I think that's the most we need to say on it. But until you actually watch it, I'll keep that in mind. Um, in terms of films that um, may have surprised your expectations, that might be a good time to pivot to Rough Magic. Rough Magic, and you've given me the job of summing this one up. So I'm going to go straight to the IMDb because <laughs> yeah, good luck. Otherwise, this is the last swordsman of the film that we've seen this week. <laughs> And this one, Rough Magic, is the only one that I've um, I saw. I said I've mentioned I've seen all of these three films before. This is the only one I saw in the cinema. It was at um, our uh, Autumn Film Festival. So before the film festival, um, we ha- would have uh, in Auckland a uh, about ten or fifteen films would be put up. Oh, is this like what the World Cinema Showcase was for a while? Yes, that's the type of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. It's, uh, and I, I remember watching it there probably only a year or so after it uh, was actually made. So please, Skeets, continue. <laughs> well, Rough Magic, 1995, uh, directed by Claire Peplow. So here's our summary. Set in the 1950s, Rough Magic tells the story of what happens when a pretty apprentice magician goes to Mexico to escape his fiance, a wealthy politician, and to find a Mexican, sorry, a Mayan shaman who will teach her the ancient principles of magic. This is not a film noir. Uh, <laughs> so I did some research because I'd never heard of this and was my mind just went, okay, how do I have to describe this film? It's actually a remake of a, a film from 1963. Oh, wow. Uh, a French film, a uh, French-Argentinian film. Uh, the American title was Miss Shumway Goes West, which was actually the title of the, the novel that it was adapted from, uh, written by James Hadley Chase who was a, he was called the king of the thriller writer in England and Europe, or on the continent, as they put it at the time. Uh, he was an English author. He wrote uh, close to 90 books over his lifetime, um, mainly in the kind of the, the thriller crime uh, novels. Uh, some of his, I looked up some of his amazing titles that came up in the 1970s, and I'm just going to quickly bring up that list that I had, uh, which I should have done earlier before I started this. There we go, James Hadley Chase. There we are. His list of film of uh, movie. To- uh, I'm going to get my words in the right order here. His live of- research. How many podcasts can bring you <laughs> live research? I have like 18 different windows open, and that's the one I did not open. But <laughs> so he did. Uh, he 
uh, wrote his first book in 1939, uh, No Orchids for Miss Blandish, which was actually adapted in film 1948. And then again in 1971 is something called The Grissom Gang, which has a nice uh, callback to uh, uh-huh. one of our actors in the previous movie. Uh, Miss Shumway Waves a Wand, which was actually the title of the book that uh, became Rough Magic, was written in 1944. And then he continued very prolifically writing, especially through the 70s, which has got an amazing title of a book I have to find called There's a Hippie on the Highway. He's also got another <laughs> one called Like a Hole in the Head. And my favourite of all time, 1976, is Do Me a Favour, Drop Dead. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, and this is a British it. writer. British writer, yeah. So he, um, he apparently his best market was in France. He, uh, a lot of his books were made, so some, like 30 of his books were made into... French movies, and then some of them were readapted to American. Uh, so this so is that's what the connection he has with Jerry Lewis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jerry Lewis, James Hadley Chase, both very popular in France. So, uh, as I say, it was originally made in the 40s, then remade by uh, Claire Peplow. And I looked up Claire Peplow. She's got a quite an interesting. Mm, yes, she does. Five directing credits uh, a TV series, a short, and three movies in three different decades. So High Season, 1987, Rough Magic, 1995, and The Triumph of Love in 2001. And I was kind of like, why is this? Why has she only done a few things? And then I looked up who she's married to, and she's married, married, or was married until he died, to Bernardo Bertolucci, director of The Last Emperor. And she was married to him for 40 years. So basically, she married him about uh, in the, the 1970s. And she did some writing. She wrote, uh, was one of the credited writers on Zabriskie Point back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But then just occasionally she dipped her toe into um, to directing. So it was like Rough Magic was her second film. And it uh, stars, well, one of the stars is Russell Crowe. So that's our Kiwi connection. And it's, I mean, some people are going to say, but Russell Crowe is an Aussie actor right off the bat. There's going to be some people who say, okay, Russell Crowe is an Aussie. Was born in New Zealand. Born in New 19- he really was. We have proof. Or, have or, proof. Well, it's on. It's on. It's, it's on, on the internet. It's there. He moved to Australia when he was four for a start, uh, because his parents were actually in film. They were. They had. Uh, they were set caterers. So they moved to Sydney, Australia, to, as most Kiwis have to do to get a, a decent job in film in the seventies and eighties. They moved to Aussie where there was more happening. And he got his first acting role at the age of five or six, they say, when he had one line of dialogue in a TV series called Spy Force against uh, opposite uh, Jack Thompson, one of the classic Aussie actors of the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, they then came back to New Zealand when he was 14, and he be- tried becoming a musician under the name Rustly Rock. If you haven't looked at <laughs> Rustly Rock, uh, <laughs> yes, they released several singles, none of which shouted, uh, and then back to Aussie at the age of 21. He's been there pretty much, you know, and I was uh, by you know, by moving ever since. But he's apparently never actually picked up Australian citizenship. So he's still technically a, a Kiwi citizen after all this So time. there. So he is one of ours, although he is one of our sort of claimed by the Aussies that for a long time most of us probably didn't argue. Didn't mind. <laughs> yeah, you can have him. He, he did commit the cardinal sin for a Kiwi of being a dickhead in public. Uh, repeatedly. Repeatedly. <laughs> And I look back to see, because I, I remember him getting arrested for throwing a phone at a concierge at the hotel in New York, the Mercer Hotel. 
And I look back to see when that was, and it was 15 years ago, and I think it's time we probably forgave him because that's the last thing that he's really done. He, he had some great scuffles. He got involved in fights in Australia. Apparently he got uh, involved in a brawl with the New Zealand businessman Eric Watson, who owned the New Zealand Warriors rugby league team, in a London restaurant, which apparently the fight was broken up by Ross Kemp, of all people. <laughs> and this is this is in the uh, need citation bit, but uh, there is there is actually a few sort of news reports about it. But I would love to see Ross Kemp having to break up two guys, probably probably arguing over rugby league because he's a massive rugby league fan, which is where I do forgive him for his his, his you know acting like a dickhead in public because I'm a rugby league fan. He's a partial owner of the Sydney South Sydney Rabbitohs, uh, and and has been for oh, a couple of well, at least a decade now. So he's, he, he did do a few idiotic things at times, and he got parodied on South Park uh, about his aggressive tendencies. But when you look at this, the other stuff he's done, it's, it's time to forgive him. I mean, sure, if, if they want to trade him off and we get custody of Eric Banner instead of him, we'll, we'll, we'll trade. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I can forgive him for a lot for just the fact he made the nice guys, which is just a – if, if you a haven't seen that film, film. – yeah. See no, that film for a while, actually. So I think you are fairly sure I've been in to see that. He was also in um, RZA's um, "The Man with the Iron Fist" uh, back in 2012, which is uh, RZA from uh, Riza. Uh, thank you very RZA. much. RZA. You're such a bloody Kiwi. I've never seen it <laughs> pronounced. I've only ever seen it now. Riza, Riza from yep. the Wu Tang. Oh, band. you mean Arza? Arza. Yes. I was going to say the RZA. His fellow Wu Tang member is not Gaza. I should clarify. Right? <laughs> one out if you like. So, or well, probably not because it's funnier. But uh, yeah, he made a he made a Shaw Brothers uh, movie in uh, 2012, a Shaw Brothers throwback movie, which I've been meaning to see. And Russell Crowe's in that apparently in a small part. So that's now added to my list as well. So Russell's been doing a lot of things. I mean, he started the first thing I remember him was um, Romper Stomper back in uh, well, 1992. Although he'd done a lot of TV before that, uh, and of course in Romper Stomper, he was he showed us intensity there because he, he played a Sydney skinhead, a racist skinhead, and he really, really is terrifying that movie at times. So, and funnily enough, the same year uh, there's a, a TV series that played 1992 to 93 in Australia called The Late Show, and The Late Show was a sketch comedy series which basically kickstarted the career of people like Eric Banner, and. I looked on the uh, his internet movie database, and there is a credit for <laughs> Russell in the Late Show, in one episode, as Shirty the slightly aggressive bear. And I've actually seen this because my sister sent me over videotapes back in the two thousands or nineties and two thousands, just to say you've got to watch the show, you'll love it, and it's hilarious. And Shirty is the perfect role for Russell Crowe because he's completely under the costume; you can't tell it's him. He wanders onto the set of his children's show, drunk as anything, molests the uh, the uh, female that he's uh, supposed to be with, and then punches out one of the camera crew. And it's one of the funniest couple of minute sketches you'll see on an Aussie TV show. So I'm I'm forgiving him for a lot now that I know that he was sure he's a slightly aggressive bear. I just <laughs> want to point out as well that in my quick looking on Wikipedia to check his um, filmography, I discovered that Russell Crowe's Jockstrap has an independent page of its own on wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) 
which involves wow. a story about him using the jockstrap and Cinderella Man, and then John Oliver auctioning it off, uh, or sorry, sorry, buying it in an auction in 2018 and donating it to Alaska's last operating blockbuster video. Uh, I won't spoil the whole, all the twists and turns of this incredible story, but if you want to ruin your browser <laughs> history forever, go ahead and Google Russell Crowe's jockstrap. My, my browser history. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking that up, but uh, but he's he's in this movie, but he's he's not the the top build star because our top build star is Bridget Fonda, uh, mm-hmm. who plays Shumway, and Russell Crowe doesn't even turn up in this film for about about what twenty minutes into the film, something so, like that. Thereabouts. Yeah, and it's so it's Bridget Fonda, Russell Crowe, and Jim Broadbent in a role which probably gave him scenery poisoning because he got to chew an awful. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, to be fair, I think he's developed immunity at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's broadbent turned up to eleven, so there's 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 a lot going on there. Kenneth Mars in this film as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but it's an interesting one to try and describe a plot of, and so I'm so glad you got me to describe the plot of it because <laughs> it's I'm gonna I'm gonna just cut right to the chase in this one. I fucking hated this movie. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. I it went on and on and the plot points didn't make any sense to me and it was beaten with a quirky stick until it screamed and in the last <laughs> just, just die movie so this may be our first time where we get a real disparity between our reviews of it because i've struggled with this movie it's an hour and 44 minutes and for me it was in the last 15 minutes it just it just needed to go away so I might leave it up to one of you guys to give us a plot rundown because I, I gave up caring. Well, didn't you? You did read the plot, <laughs> so it's I mean, yeah. I don't think we need a, to do that any further. We don't really need to get. I mean, for me, it's um, one of the highlights is the intensity that uh, Jim Broadbent delivers the line: "The dog ate the sausage." <laughs> And I think that describes the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, you've you've got Bridget Fonda as a character who goes on the run, basically, or goes on the run from her her very, very mustache twirling fiance is the best way I can describe it. He's he's definitely uh, he's a D.W. Moffat, I think he plays that. Yes, and he he's he's pretty much a nineteenth or twenties silent movie villain. And from from there on, when she gets, I mean, it starts off with a, a scene with Jim Broadbent, you know, looking for. Uh, a shaman and and uh, a Mayan shaman, and I'm like, well, where are we going with this? This, I, as I said, this was the first movie I watched, and I was expecting a film noir, a neo noir, and I got. Oh, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely <laughs> looking for a good neo noir. This is not the movie you are looking for. I so, think a good way it, to describe this film is um, is whimsy. It's quirky. It's whimsical, and if you realism, yes, mm. very much. Um, I. I enjoyed it. It's I again. I'd seen it before, um, but it's it's not. It's a film that I watched twenty years ago and then forgot about and stumbled across. Um, so it's not a film that's going to stay in your consciousness for very long. I don't think. Going to stay in mind for the wrong reasons, unfortunately. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, you said something earlier, Skeet, about um, well-drawn female characters, and this was the third one I watched, and so. I may have given it a bit more um, leeway in part because I just really enjoyed 
Bridget Fonda for the first two thirds of this. And um, partially because realizing that she's been gone from our screens for so long, I actually was like, what happened to her? And she married Danny Elfman and quit acting and hasn't <laughs> been, yeah. been on the screen for 17 years. But um, oh, she, she um, like 39 but it's like 87 in Hollywood years. So, I mean, you know, the roles were not going to be thrown at her anymore, I'm, I'm sure. So. Perhaps so, but it's pretty easy to imagine, like in the, this day of peak TV, her, you know, being on some kind of thing as, you know, drug dealer's wife or whatever, you know, Ozark or any of those kinds of things. But she just seems to be content to not do that. Um, but I, um, I just really enjoyed having a quote unquote strong female that was written by a woman. And so didn't need to like kind of conform to any strong female character types and was just, um, and, and there's this good question from the very beginning, the very first scene that you see with Bridget Fonda, she like goes into an elevator because her rabbits got loose. And then she finds rabbits and all these other people's jackets and then hands them cards for the magic show that night um but you're like how did she pull that off and and you know the question of what level magic exists at in this universe is not answered as efficiently as it is in cast a deadly spell um and so you learn that actually her magic is not just um chicanery but she has some kind of actual power and this connects to the mayan shaman um plot um and so her kind of going through all this, even though there isn't a lot of forward narrative momentum, uh, it was still kind of an enjoyable hangout vibe for me. And certainly, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, cutting to the mustache twirling villain does feel like a bit of a change of tone, but, um, and then going and having the potentially problematic, but I felt kind of worked out. Okay. Like I definitely felt like the depiction of a foreign culture's relationship to music, uh, magic, excuse me, worked better here than in cast a deadly spell where it kind of has this weird sort of voodoo vibe that felt slightly vaguely, uncomfortably racist. Um, here it's just like, yeah, we don't fully understand it. Um, but then when it goes full magic, uh, around the time, that D.W. Moffat shows up in Mexico is where it started to just kind of be like, okay, where is this going? And, and yeah, it definitely does not resolve in a satisfying manner. And it has that feel of a 400 page novel that just got um, pulverized to bring it, bring all these things together in a way that just doesn't quite land. But um but I still didn't feel like Claire Peplow deserved to go to movie jail for it. Oh, I, I don't know whether she went to movie jail or whether she just occasionally decided that, hey, I'd like to make a film. You know, I, I, you know, you make tons of films. Buy me a film that I can direct. And Bernardo went out and got her a script. But it's it's maybe, you know, it could have been a script that got sent to Bernardo Bertolucci and he passed on. Well, no, she she wrote it as well. Oh, she wrote oh, She did write it, yeah. She, yeah, mm. she, she, she wrote Rough Magic and her follow-up, The Triumph of Love. And she also wrote... Um, Bertolucci's La Luna and Besieged. So um, she's been working as a writer in that capacity. But it's still, um, you know, it's one of those, it's hard to tell on paper, you know, what ha- what has never come to screen, you know, uh, and whether she's has a drawer full of scripts that were never made, or also if she was actually kind of, um, I know that n- near the end of Bertolucci's career, he was a bit infirm. And so help- helping out with some of those later films may have been part of her 
uh, process, it's hard to know. Yeah. The one thing I found with this film was that, I mean, the direction really seemed to be much more interested in all the quirky stuff that was happening on screen. And some other things fell by the wayside because when Russell Crowe first appears on screen, his accent, he is the most Brooklyn man in Brooklyn. He is completely over-the-top Brooklyn. And then halfway through the film, he's Australian again. And it just, it's, it's like it fell away as if he was not given the, you know, the direction of, hey, remember that accent you were doing earlier on? Do you want to keep that consistent? And so when he turns up, all I could, every time he turned up in a scene, all I could think of was, now, who's he going to be this time? Is he Australian? Is he Chicago? Oh, he's a little well, it bit It sounded British more now. New Zealand to me. But, yeah, he's uh, got a bit, yeah. bit more Kiwi there. But it's, it, it kept throwing me out on that one there. Not as much as my favorite internet movie database review of it. And uh, Addy7, whoever you are, who reviewed this 15 years or 19 years ago. Uh, Russell Crowe put me off. He wore that damn fedora all the time, indoors and out. He only took it off to go to bed. I actually remember the 30s, and no man wore their hat so relentlessly. Thank you. Uber <laughs> reviews from Addy7, and I absolutely want that one framed and sent to Russell Crowe. Don't wear your hat so much, sir. <laughs> oh, that's a... That's a, a... A very good acting critique. <laughs> he did wear his hat more than the actual hat squad. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, much, yeah. They took their hats off from time to time. But uh, Jim Broadbent was a, was the thing for me, which, you know, Jim Broadbent is, a, you know, he's a fun actor in the right role. And he does go, he is able to really stage act at times. But for me, this one, it just, every time he came on, between Russell Crowe's floating accent, Bridget Fonda was nice and solid in it. And then Jim Broadbent would come on and would be performing it for me like he was on stage at a, you know, yes, musical uh, with, you know, performing for children. And it was, it was just <laughs> overall that all I could see was Jim Broadbent having fun. And I could not focus on him as the character, as, as the doctor character. So if you were in the back row of a thousand seat theater, you'd yeah. be able to hear and see everything he was doing. If I, still went to Pop, I could have still heard what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I could have yes, he was. He was a bit of a guide, and his voice would have come out the pages at me. It was. <laughs> there was there was a bit of gurning going on. That's that's true. I, I it's How does unfortunately this I'm your not, memories. I'm, I'm not much of a critic. It's um, I I just enjoyed it. It's uh, I didn't. It's it's such a slight film, and it's. Um, it's very whimsical and I just sort of let it flow over me and I didn't look at it too critically because I'd already watched it before. Um, and it's, I, I enjoyed it. It's, I found it, it, um, it is a bit on the slow side in parts, but I, I thought that Bridget Fonda was great and it was great seeing her again. It's like a, an old friend you haven't seen for a long time. It's uh, I uh, haven't watched a Bridget Fonda movie in, in quite some time. I need to. We're going to watch start. Single White Female in this house, actually, off the back of uh, this, because uh, we recently brought that up. And it's like, oh, yeah, she was great in that. So, Yeah, excellent. And I, I might seek out Jackie Brown because I think I've got it. And I know I've I think I've got touch somewhere, which is also a lot of fun. Is that I'll good? Probably watch, I'll probably just watch Lake Placid for like the eighth time. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, yeah. Well, that's excellent. That's probably is the last time I've seen her. Um, watched one of her films would have been Lake Placid. But yes, touches. Is, is huh? uh, <laughs> shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's not ruin the whole 
Bridget Fonda loves this. <laughs> You've ruined the whole podcast now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Touch is actually quite a, a nice, fun little film, uh, directed by Paul Schrader. And uh, Paul Schrader and fun go together like uh, something doesn't. Um, and uh, but this is yeah, it, that's quite a uh, quite a neat little film too. That's worth a, a look to give a, a, a quick review. But um, yeah, I I liked it. It's it's not a it's not a film that I, I loved. We're talking about rough magic here, but I, it's, I don't think it, it's a film that needs or a lot of thought going into it really, or, um, or thought about it. Cause I, I know that, um, t- when I watched it probably in about 1996 at the film festival, I don't think I've thought about it since. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try it's... to avoid thinking about it. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I, think, I, I think next time maybe we'll get, um, <laughs> We could maybe pick three films that aren't films Darren saw and barely remembered and wants to inflict on us. <laughs> that could be an interesting one because you've seen a lot of films and, you know, definitely. Well, that's I, it. I, I was looking through some of my history on Letterboxd the other day and I was just like, did I even see this film? Because there was another podcast I was listening to. It said, oh, give us some feedback on this film. I'm like, have I seen this? And it turned out I'd seen it five years ago and completely blanked on it, but gave it a four star review on uh, on uh, the uh, letterbox. So, which film was this? That was the relic, and apparently I really like oh. the relic. But now I can't remember jack shit about the relic. So maybe it wasn't as good as I thought. But um, oh, I like the relic. We did see that at the same time as we saw Juan of the Dead. So maybe it was just a really good night that one. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I can definitely recommend Juan of the Dead if you haven't seen that one. That's, that's oh, that's yeah, yeah. But uh, the relic's quite a lot of fun, and Linda Hunt is a great role in that too she's um the museum it's this is a, hor- a horror film with um tom sizemore as our lead and penelope ann miller as the uh, as the female lead linda hunt plays the um uh the one uh, she runs the uh, the metropolitan museum or something along those lines but it's a a fun little sort of horror thing have you watched it before um doug no i haven't uh, oddly enough oh. the people on the podcast i listened to absolutely hated it they were, they found it was too dark they they really couldn't you know they couldn't get over the, the the 90s cg which is at times 90s cg can be very distracting but apparently i liked it so i'm going to have to go back and have a look at that it's been five years but um yeah well that. if you right grew up, up with that stuff you cut it a little more slack i think it's it's the first in a sort of 15, 16 book series about um, Tom Sizemore's character and another character who they actually completely cut from the movie. It wasn't in the script at all. Um, it's about a, a yeah, private investigator and a um, and a detective, a police detective. But uh, yes, the private investigator character um, uh, sort of. Na- uh, supernatural phenomena type thing. He uh, didn't feature in the movie at all. But Hello? we've completely gone off uh, off subject. What's what's new? <laughs> yeah, and you and you cut you cut off a bit there as well during that. So um, I might just try to find a quick edit to bring us back into uh, this. Um, so yeah, let's. Uh, do you want to just um, give some kind of wrap up statement, Darren? Because you had talked about trying to draw. Um, uh, things across the three films. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know that I can, but it's worth a try, okay. isn't it? <laughs> well, we don't have to. We could also, we could also. I mean, we've gone on for two hours, so we can also just say. And with that, it's time to wrap up. And uh, stay safe during the quarantine. And until next time, this is Doug. This is Steve. This is Darren. Oh, and Skeet. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I'm here too. Yeah. <laughs> and this was. This is going to be a lot specific. easier when I can actually see you guys in the same room. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> we won't be talking over each other quite as much. And we if we are, it'll be more intentional. <laughs> and Skeet won't sound like he's down a well. So hopefully this will be the last time that <laughs> we do uh, <laughs> distance recording. <laughs> this is essentially our well chronicles, isn't it? It's uh, Every time we do this, it's Skeet is down a well. Oh, well. Deeper and deeper. <laughs> okay. See you next time. See you later. See you Bye-bye. next time. Bye-bye.